and it's great to be with you today. Our faith heritage at Pepperdine is inextricably linked to our identity and it forms all of our business decisions at the university. Our founder, George Pepperdine, said in 1937, there are many good colleges and universities which can give you standard academic training, but if our school does not give you more than that, it really has no reason to exist. And we remember that many universities started out with a faith mission and affiliation which was lost over time. As Pepperdine ambassadors, no matter our background, we should be knowledgeable and familiar with the heritage of our university rooted in the churches of Christ. So Pepperdine is sometimes unlike other faith-based institutions in that we do not require statements of faith from our faculty, staff, or students, and we welcome to our community people from all backgrounds and traditions. And this open table that we enjoy can be traced back to the recent history of the churches of Christ of the restoration movement in the 19th century. So during a time when the church was fragmenting into ever smaller pieces because different denominations wanted to distinguish themselves through varying creeds and sets of beliefs, the restoration movement worked to unify the church and emphasize all that we have in common. And at Pepperdine, we desire unity, not to be confused with uniformity, and for all of our community members to live at our mission in ways that are authentic and meaningful to them. And there's no one better uh, or more fitting today to lead our discussion about the history, the heritage, and the future of the Churches of Christ than Mike Cope. And as many of us know, Mike is the Director of Ministry Outreach for Pepperdine. And before coming to us in 2012, Mike was a longtime senior minister at the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene and an adjunct professor of New Testament at Abilene Christian University. So Mike's going to share some ideas and some stories that have formed who the Churches of Christ are, and there will be a few minutes at the end to ask any questions that you might have. So please join me in welcoming Mike Cope. Thank you so much, Sean Mike, and it's good to be with you. We're a, a bit of a mixed crowd here, and let me explain. Those from Pepperdine's side know how this class was built, uh, but some of the others on the harbor side maybe didn't. This class is created for my fellow co-workers at Pepperdine. Uh, I was bred and born in this heritage, but many of them work for a school that has the, the common alley, but they don't know that, that much about it. So I was very excited about this class. Two disclaimers to begin with. Number one, I was so excited about it, I got like one of my all-time best speakers to come teach it. That's the good news. The bad news is he had to cancel. So <clears throat> you're stuck with me. And uh, I'd like to apologize. My dear friend Don McLaughlin was the one I said, man, this is important. I want you to come teach it. But Don, because of aging parent issues, was not able to come. The second disclaimer is, this is awkward to me because I'm talking about who Churches of Christ are, what the nature of this funny group is. And um, it's just funny that I would be up here because in the room right now, is the person who was the most influential leader in Churches of Christ of my lifetime, who taught the previous hour. I can say that unequivocally. And uh, two actual bona fide restoration historians. My friend Leonard Allen is back here. I think Jerry Rushford is here someplace. They are real historians about Churches of Christ. I, on the other hand, am a Southern storyteller. 
which means I don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. So I will tell you a few good stories as we, we press on through. I, uh, I'm privileged to work here. I've worked here since uh, 2012. Um, but I don't see my coworkers very often uh, because I still live in Abilene, Texas. When Andy Benton offered me the job, uh, my wife and I said, we can't really move. Uh, that had been home for a long time. Uh, our youngest was born there. He's 30 now. Our middle child, Megan, died when she was 10. She's buried there. And it's not just that her cemetery is there. It's that her stories are embedded in our faith community there. And we just couldn't imagine getting away from that. And our older son is uh, a physician in town. But the real reason has, has more to do with these reasons. Three grandchildren and a grand doodle. That's, that's the Abilene thing that keeps us there. So I'm in and out, and I look out, and I see some of this in this group who actually helped me in those arrangements, my coworkers. Uh, I kind of have four main jobs here. I lead this lectureship. And then there are three Lily sponsored initiatives that we have that I lead. One geared toward the uh, renewal of ministers, one geared toward the renewal of churches, and then the new one is the renewal of preaching. So that's the role I get to play and explains why, though we are co-workers, we maybe don't bump into each other very often. But I am going to try to tell a little bit about the story of Churches of Christ. I was thinking that I would be doing it talking behind the back of my fellow Church of Christ members, but look, they're here, so I'm, I'm rearranging notes even as I go. So here's who we are. We are part of the American Restoration Movement. And three big denominations that owe their heritage to that are the Disciples of Christ, the Independent Christian Churches, and Churches of Christ. Now, originally, those kind of came together in the 19th century as one group, sometimes called Disciples, sometimes Christian Churches, sometimes Churches of Christ, but it was basically the same group. Churches of Christ had a kind of formal separation from the other two in 1906, and the other two had a formal separation over fundamentalist battles in the 1960s. But this is who we are. This is where we came from. And it was a large part of the second great awakening in the United States. So we were one little group that was going through these kind of renewal issues. But the second great awakening from about 17... 90 to 1840, it was that time period, especially on the, the western frontier of America, that some of these stories took place. This is the group I've known. I was born into a Church of Christ family, a small church in southwest Missouri, lived there my whole life, graduated. I went to a Church of Christ school, Harding University, and did my my graduate work from the same university over in Memphis, and, and I've spent my life in it. It's, it's been a great blessing teaching at ACU, Abilene Christian University, for 15 years, and now to be a part of this great work at Pepperdine. But we'll, we'll try to anchor this just a little bit more. Um, the Disciples of Christ today in the United States have about 350,000 independent churches, independent Christian churches and churches of Christ each have approximately a million members in the United States. Now, many more members worldwide, but this is where we have better statistics. I might add that, as you could guess, knowing about religious groups as you do, that there is a pretty rapid decline 
in numbers in these churches. That's true across the board. Southern Baptists lost 2.5 million in 15 years. It's, it's part of the increase in the nuns, those who are not a part of any faith community, and it's a, just a part of a larger segment of society that's not connecting with church per se, maybe spirituality, but not the church. Um, when I talk about churches of Christ, an interesting thing is that 600,000 of the million approximately are in five states. They are in, in order, Texas, Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, Oklahoma. I believe that's the way it goes. So if you've been out on the West Coast for much of your life, you maybe didn't bump into very large churches of Christ. Our center of population is elsewhere. They're vibrant. I'm lucky to get to work with these churches up and down the West Coast, but they don't have the numbers that maybe you have in what we always call the Bible Belt. So that's a little bit about the size. And then on top of that, Oh, yeah, the pandemic. So you know that from your church, from your heritage, that most churches are experience a reluctance of many people to come back, declines of 20 to 30%, and we don't yet know where all of that has shaken out. And that's affected churches of Christ, just like it has churches you may be familiar with. So what I want to do um, in our class is talk about one idea and two leaders and three stories, and four strengths. And each strength has a potential dark side that we'll talk about. And again, welcome to the Harbor audience. I'm, I'm delighted you're in here. I'm, I'm speaking especially to, to my coworkers who are wondering who this group is. And I hope it resonates with you. But the idea that was behind it was Christian unity. At the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, people looked around, especially on the American frontier, and said, there's division everywhere. Churches are dividing. Now, you might say, well, it's not that much different today. I know. There's always a need for unity. Our Lord prayed for unity. You know that wonderful passage in John 17. Paul calls for unity in the church. And yet we find it so very difficult. You think of the many rippling numbers of denominations. And this was a group that said, Christians ought to just be Christians. Uh, we shouldn't have this kind of Christian and we shouldn't have that kind of Christian. We ought to just follow Jesus. We ought to simply be Christians. Now, of course, it unravels more complicated than that as is usually too true of great ideas, but at least in its beginning, in its inchoate form, it was about an eagerness for Christians to be united. And so one of the early sayings was that we're not the only Christians, but Christians only. So not Christian plus this or Christian plus that. We follow Jesus, and that ought to be enough. So that was the idea. We weren't the only group that had that idea. I'm not claiming that. Some of you have heritage in other denom denominations that had that passion as well. But I know in my own heritage, that was there. Now, as I said, it gets complicated because remember what I said in 1906? One group pulled off from the other two. In the 1960s, there was a fundamentalist debate, and then the other two split. So at least these three denominations. And on top of that, just a little insider's info, our group, one restoration historian has said, at Ellen Christian has said, he can name 75 issues that we have divided over. 
So let's just put all the cards on the table here, right? You know, it's not like we wound up the model of unity. But you know, sometimes, sometimes having an ideal matters, even when you fall short. It's that gap that we experience in life between the friendship we hope for and the friendship as it currently exists, the marriage we hope for and the marriage that we experience. It's, it's the ideal, and, and I would hate to lose at least that eagerness for churches to find unity together and to find that there are things that are central that unite us, and we don't have to agree on the myriad of things that are out there. We'll get back to that in just a minute. So that's the one idea. Two leaders. You could go with a lot of leaders here, but I've chosen the two that are kind of iconic. Barton W. Stone, 1772 to 1844. Sadly, Campbell got a photo that has color. He's in black and white here. Uh, just a little bit older, perhaps. I don't know the reason. The funny thing is everything I'm going to surmise about, Jerry knows the answer to. But I'm surmising. I'm a Southern storyteller. And Stone is a Kentucky preacher. He believes in spiritual revival. He just wants people to follow Jesus. He just wants simple Christianity. He believes in using the gifts of the Spirit. When he talks about unity, his phrase is a unity of fire. A unity of fire because the Holy Spirit is going to come in and create that kind of unity. He is a person of ethics. He believes that to say you're a Christian is a declaration of the way you live. That what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is not just interesting fodder for Bible class. It's a commitment of a person to a way. And so when his wife inherited slaves, out of deep conviction, he moved to Illinois so they could immediately release them. Now, that might seem like an obvious thing to us today, of course, but back then, that's not the way everybody was going, but he was a man who felt called to the radical ways of Jesus. Alexander Campbell, I'll tell a story about him in just a moment, 1788 to 1866, part of the Campbell family in Ireland. His father was Thomas Campbell, another famous leader in Churches of Christ, whom I'll allude to. But they were weary of all the division. They were Presbyterians. I, as I may have said Baptist, but Bart W. Stone was a Kentucky, Kentucky Presbyterian minister. So they're Irish. They're part of the Irish church, the Scottish church over there. And they are committed to unity. Thomas Campbell gets weary of it all. And in 1807, the father comes to the United States, comes to western Pennsylvania. But Alexander... Alexander is the one who was committed to the life of the mind. Keep in mind, this is kind of the end of the Enlightenment era. And so we're reading science, we're reading logic, we're figuring out how to study the Bible with scientific tools. And many of us who train for ministry in churches of Christ, we owe a lot to him. In fact, that's a kind of way of saying we blame him for a lot of it. Uh, in my seven years of ministry studies, I had seven years of Greek. If you're in another denomination, nobody made your minister take seven years of Greek. I didn't have one minute on how not to be an idiot in an elders meeting. Like how to hold on to yourself, how to be mature. The common things in life, you know. But man, the Greek, the Hebrew, the, the so on, we believed in that. And I think as a spiritual heir, we owe a lot of that to Campbell. So you can imagine the interesting combination this brings together when for Campbell, 
we're likely talking about a unity that is rational. It's uh, a kind of progressive primitivism. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to what the New Testament says. Let's just do what the Bible says. And so it's largely a restoration in doctrine and a focus on the church. Whereas with Barton W. Stone, it, it is an apocalyptic primitivism. I first learned that phrase from my buddy Leonard back there, that it was all about the breaking end of the kingdom of God. If we're going to restore, then we need to pray and be kind and to be whole and to bring people together and forgive and love. It's a radical following of Jesus, and it's a restoration largely in ethics. Well, one of the stories I'll tell in a minute is about the two groups coming together. Okay, so one idea, two leaders, three stories. And this is where my southern storyteller flair may come, but it's 1801. And um, how many have heard of the Asbury Revival just recently? Yeah, we've all heard about the Asbury Revival. One day in chapel at Asbury, uh, the campus minister got a last-minute invite to get up and preach, and uh, I've listened to the sermon. It was not particularly good, and I, I say that probably because he knew it. He got off the stage, and he texted his wife, well, another stinker. I'll be home early, <laughs> and he, he started to leave, but no student left because he ended by talking about the overwhelming love of God, and that's what this lectureship is about this year, the overwhelming love of God. And there was just something about that that washed over them into a revival, a renewal. And, and maybe there were some unusual things happening, but largely it was just devotion, recommitment to God. Well, for those of you who know Churches of Christ today, it may surprise you, but one of the early Asbury kind of revivals was with Barton W. Stone and some of those Kentucky Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists coming together. This is one of the launching places of Churches of Christ, the Cane Ridge Revival in 1801. I, I hadn't gotten to go until last summer. Leonard and I and a couple other buddies were going through Kentucky, and we stopped. We had communion on a Sunday morning at Cane Ridge, remembering when 20,000 of our spiritual ancestors gathered there for renewal and revival. They had, um, I think we uh, euphemistically referred to them as spiritual exercises at the time. They, there was rolling in the dirt and people barking and jumping and clapping and dancing and so on. It's a funny thing when you try to control the spirit of God. It doesn't always go well. And they were lost in wonder, love, and praise. And it's funny to me, I'm a rational heir of this heritage, but there was another side that I've, I've tried to own up to through the years. And so it's interesting that some of you, my coworkers who are from more charismatic traditions, that there is some overlap, at least in the DNA of Churches of Christ. We, we've worked pretty hard to lean into the other side. Sing a song where people lift hands. You can find the Church of Christ people. We're there, except for down in the field house. You put United Voice Worship leading, and everybody forgets who we are. We're Pentecostals all of a sudden down there. You suddenly feel like, you know, I, I can almost get it that high, you know. And just... So that's one of the stories. 
When, when I think of who my people are and where we came from, that's a story that means a lot to me because I didn't hear that story growing up. But I owned it later from people like Jerry and Leonard and others. The retelling of the story that we began in a revival in rural Kentucky where 20,000 people brought their covered wagons together and they found spiritual renewal. Story number two, it's 1809. Uh, Alexander's father, Thomas, as I said, in 1807, two years before, had come to the United States, western Pennsylvania. He's supposed to come in 1808, but there's a shipwreck. He stays behind, and he's studying at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. The Campbells, and this is part of what set him off about all of the need for unity, they are Presbyterians, but they are old light, anti-burger, succeeder Presbyterians. I mean, and we've all seen this happen to denominations, right? We've all seen it happen where there's a division, and then that group divides, and that group divides, and that had happened there as it tends to happen to most. So you had the Presbyterians, but then a group broke off the seceder Presbyterians because the way churches were often selecting their ministers was whoever the wealthy family was who gave the land to the church, they got to pick the minister. Guess who they usually picked? Their son or their nephew or somebody. And some people said, that just doesn't ring as a spiritual way to call ministers. So a group left and they were the seceder Presbyterians, but that wasn't the end of it. There were the burgers and the anti-burgers. This was a church and state controversy. Do you need the endorsement of the mayor, the burger, or not? And the anti-church and state people said, why do we need the mayor's approval here. They were the anti-burgers. And then, new lights and old lights, because some people are always going back to Scripture looking for something new. And do you know any people for whom the word new is a very nervous word? And so some of them said, we don't need new light. We need the old light. And especially for them, it would be more Calvinistic, creedal statements. But that's where Campbell comes from. And that's part of the yearning for unity. He's an old light, anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian. He's studying at the University of Glasgow. He's 21 years old. It's May of 1809, and it's time for their semi-annual communion service. And back then, you had to earn your token to take communion. You had to sit before the board, board of elders, presbyters, and prove that you were orthodox. Prove that you are a true seceder Presbyterian. And it goes around, and Campbell, probably the smartest guy in the room, gives all the answers. He gets his token. But when he comes to the table for communion, he just cannot do it. These persnickety little rules about who gets to commune with Jesus Christ did not strike him right. And so he took his token put it in the tray, and left. Now, you can ask Jerry later if that story is really true. Jerry, that story is true, isn't it? Yeah, Jerry's nodding yes. I've got an affirmative there. I, if it's not, don't tell me, because I've hung on to that story forever. <laughs> like, if it's not, I've got to know. I don't want to know. But, but I think it is that 
In fact, I spoke to Pepperdine students one time, incoming freshmen. There were a couple years they had freshmen. I did not this stuff, but something about Churches of Christ. And I kind of, in an in a example of overdrive and overkill, said the Church of Christ began in 1809. It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but for me, that story is so important because it does play into unity. I'm not going to let you tell me who gets to commune with Jesus. Now, some of you are from denominations that have closed communion. Like for those of you who are Catholic, in most Catholic churches, if you're not Catholic, you can go to the front for a blessing, but you can't receive communion. So that's a closed communion tradition. But I would say most of us in the room from the Protestant end are from open communion traditions where I don't decide for you. There may be a kind of open call, all who follow Jesus. But that very closed, semi-legalistic quizzing that Campbell had did not work for him. I put on the other side as a way of cheating and putting a fourth story in that um, this is a copy. I took that picture at uh, Abilene Christian University Restoration Library. It's one of two copies that we know where they are of the Declaration and Address that his father wrote in 1809 in West, uh, Western Pennsylvania. The Declaration and Address of the Christian Association of Washington. And in it, he spells out that the Church of Christ upon earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one, consisting of all those in every place that profess that faith in Christ and obedience to him in all things according to the scriptures, and so on. It was, again, endearing language about simple Christianity, about unity. And for those of you from other groups, if, 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 somebody, if I or somebody from my group has ever treated you as if that's not true, I'm so sorry. If it was me, I apologize for me. If it was others, I apologize for that. Because we don't believe that you've got to agree on everything to follow Jesus. We're going to have to have some diversity. We read scripture. We have different traditions. But we have the same commitment to the risen Christ. Amen. So that's uh, story number two and 2B. And then the third story is 1832. So this is the year that the two groups come together. It was actually New, uh, New Year's Eve, 1831, then a kind of a formal announcement of it in 1832. So two people came from the Campbell side, and two people came from the Stone side. And there they found a kind of unity. From the Stone side came John Smith, I mean John Rogers and John Allen Gano. From the Campbell side, John Smith and John Johnson. So it was not the most diverse crowd in the world. It was middle-aged white men, all named John, uh, that gathered. <laughs> And uh, diversity would remain a problem for the group from then on. Uh, an interesting thing about those four men, Jerry wrote his master's thesis on Jan John Allen Ganneau. And Jerry, I think this is right. I went back and looked at my notes. I think John Allen was Howard Hughes' great, great, great grandfather, right? Pepperdine came that close to being fully endowed, <laughs> that close. If somebody hadn't dropped the ball along the way, we wouldn't be having to raise funds. We would have the, the Howard Hughes. Of course, he might not have made that fortune. Uh, so they come together in Lexington, Kentucky. And even though they're kind of different, 
I mean, you think about it. Here comes Stone and his people. It's been a while since Cane Ridge, but they believe in the unity of fire. And here comes Alexander Campbell from West Virginia, and he's got a copy of John Locke in his saddlebag. You know, and yet they come together and they realize, hey, these themes overlap. Just being Christians, being unified, as well as some of the other things I'll tell in just a moment. So, like many groups, we have these founding stories. I picked these three, but there would be many others, and I hope the other stories would show more diversity, both in geography and gender and so on. But these three have lived large in the imagination of people in churches of Christ. And they have to do with simple Christianity, with unity, with communion with one another, and with returning to the Bible, returning to Scripture. So, one vision, unity, two leaders, Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, three stories, Cane Ridge, the token, the gathering together in 1832, and now, what I think of as fourth strengths of the heritage. Strength number one, because largely of Campbell, we have a high view of education, a high view of rationality. It was embedded in us. Now, I'll talk about the dark side in a moment. But the positive side is we, we believed in learning. I mean, even if Pepperdine, somebody, if I hear somebody say, well, academics shouldn't be that important, we're Christians, I'm like, yeah, you know, there's that whole thing about love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We, do, we take academics seriously because our Lord told us to. Not just academics, not just thinking, but it does lean into that part which believes in thinking and reading, and studying. Not everybody's going to do that. It's not everybody's calling, but it's essential. And so there are these nice universities scattered around, launched by Churches of Christ, and that's not an accident. Other groups started just little preacher training groups or Bible colleges or something. Those all have their place. But because of this heritage of rationality, we leaned into universities. Now, the dark side. Well, you know what that is. It does not behoove us to have overconfidence in human rationality. We're all fallen people. We all have blinders. We need to be tested by others. And the dark side of this strength is you can become people who are just pretty cocksure that your way of doing things and thinking about things is the way. And so you need friendship, you need humility, you need spiritual formation in a community to make sure we don't become haughty. And there have been times, I'll let you confess for your denomination, I'll confess for mine, for me and mine, but there have been times when a kind of confidence that we'd figured the Bible took over. And the next thing you know, the way that works is we figured it out and you haven't figured it out, so we're in and you're out. Now, it shouldn't be that way, and it's not always that way. And thank God it's changing, in my Amen. humble opinion. But that's always the dark side that can sit there. Strength number two, a high view of Scripture. Again, many of you come from churches with a high view of Scripture. But it's like 
serious DNA for this group. We are... Uh, we believe in fresh study. We, we believe there's a reason churches of Christ have an uncanny number of Bible scholars. We've sent people way beyond, we've swung way beyond our batting average when it comes to Old Testament scholars and New Testament scholars, people that dig deep in Scripture. Now, we haven't been that good with theology. Because theology is taking the wide-angle view, you know? It's looking at the wide things of Scripture, and it thinks about creeds, you know, and we were suspicious of creeds and, and things like that. You can be a theologian in Churches of Christ, but it's a sad life. <laughs> Ask Ron Highfield, my, my friend Ron Highfield. Ron will say, it's, it's been a rough life. Leonard's a theologian. I mean, you can be a theologian, but, but we mostly produce Bible scholars, New Testament scholars, Old Testament scholars. But, but more than that is my granddad, a carpenter, knew the book of Acts as well, maybe better than most people who teach Acts. And I, I don't, when I think of my granddad, I don't think of him as an unlearned person, but I don't think of him particularly as a learned person. But he took that call seriously, that it, it was his job to dig in and study. I have more affectionate memories of Grandma, who was making sweet rolls <laughs> and teaching capitals of states and playing Monopoly and all of that. But in terms of my heritage, my granddad, I see him sitting there, an old man, carpenter's hands, Bible open to the book of Acts, reading. And at its best, that has been true, a high view of Scripture. Now, what's the dark side? The dark side is that it's always easy to think that's the goal. And that's not the goal. The devil can quote Scripture. Remember that? I mean, you can be a Bible scholar and not follow Jesus. You can treat your neighbor horribly. You can be a racist. You can do all of these and yet be devoted to the study of Scripture. That's not the goal. The goal is the transformation into the way of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's the life of God. It's the forming of a person. But we believe that Scripture is a large part of that happening. That it's a lens, not the only lens, but a primary lens through which one sees God, through which one sees Jesus. But we have to always, always be careful that we don't think that the goal is to be learned Bible people. It's uh, Eugene Peterson told the, the parable of the family that had a beautiful plate glass window. And they always looked through the window to the beauty. Here, we would say, they looked at Catalina Island. They looked at the waves. And then one day, seagull came and pooped on the window. And the guy there was like, oh, no, i got to take care of that. And so he went to Lowe's, and he got some things. He crawled up on there, and he got rid of that. And then he, he went out the next morning, and he looked. But he, he mostly just looked at the window make sure that he got it cleaned. And then he started noticing some other things. And he was streaked. He never really realized that. Of course there is. There's salt water in the air. So he goes back to Lowe's and he gets industrial strength cleaner and, and all of the things you need, a big squeegee, and he comes back. And you can see where the parable is going. Before long, he becomes obsessed on the window and he doesn't see the beauty. Which Eugene Peterson, one of the great Bible teachers of my lifetime, said is a model of people who don't see beyond the sacred page to the risen Lord.
So that's, that's the danger of number two. Number three, a high view of the church. Um, we're, we're not a big me and Jesus bunch. We have, the way we like to put it is high ecclesiology. In other words, the church matters. The church matters. You're, you're not just invited to follow Jesus and then go into a cubicle and practice spiritual disciplines. You're invited into a community of people. The church matters. Here's a little aside that interests me. So some of the people I've had come here include Tom Wright, the world's greatest New Testament scholar, in my opinion, and Scott McKnight and other people like that. They are associated with what's called the new perspective on Paul. The new perspective on Paul is different from the old perspective. The old perspective is Paul was battling legalism. Paul's given it to the Old Testament and legalism, and he's feeling guilty and helping people not feel guilty. And the new perspective on Paul said, you know, that's not really who Paul was. The Old Testament's not legalistic. You're reading it wrong. And not only that, but Paul is a missionary trying to create communities of diversity, communities of faith. His passion is not trying to help guilty people feel unguilty. His passion is creating people who are one in Christ. That that's the big Pauline theme. And I both want to remain neutral on that while assuring you on the side they're absolutely correct. That's, that's the big issue. It doesn't mean he doesn't address being guilty. And you can read Romans and just like many people before you find, find grace. But it's primarily there to shape people as one body used by God to call people into the new world that God's creating through the risen Christ. So... The church is important. Now, to go with that, and this is one that will probably puzzle you as you've tried to figure us out, is we don't have an HQ. There's no headquarters. We're independent, autonomous congregations. Our motto is, nobody's the boss of me. My church has its local leaders. We're trying to figure things out, and we don't know. And we... One of my friends says, the only thing holding churches of Christ together is our lack of communication. <laughs> Let that sink in. You Methodists understand. Y'all shouldn't have been talking. The Methodist church is blue in half. You know why? You communicated. So we, we, we got this church, that church, that church. So how, how do we have anything in common? There's no HQ. Um, there's, no, there's no bishop, there's no regional council, there's nothing. You know what we had? We had two things. We had journals, which, you know, that's largely a thing of the past, journals per se. And we had universities. And so we got together at places like Harbor, and we talked and compared notes, and um, it's, it's a kind of funny insider's information about this is that a lot of important stuff happens here. It's, it, it's why something like this feels important to us because that's where we, we're not going to have a national conference. These, this, something like this is our informal national conference. And so there is the strength of, of the church. Now, the dark side, again, can be 
that a church can become closed on its own assurances, that we in our group have figured it out. But as long as the borders are porous, that holds lots of potentials. Now, typically, to be honest, especially on the West Coast, our churches are not big, booming megachurches. But I've also got the conviction that a lot of what's needed on the West Coast is some small churches with welcoming people, grandmas and grandpas, uncles and aunts in the faith. We need people who can be kind and forbearing. We need models of forgiveness. And we need discipleship where somebody actually knows your name. So I'm, I'm very fond of these West Coast churches that I, I get to be associated with. Well, we've got four minutes and a fourth topic. And that is, we have had a high view of baptism and communion. I mean, it's, it's just there. Every, every church of Christ, there's going to be a baptistry someplace. If, there's, if it's small and there's not one in the building, we're going to find one. When I was the senior minister for the Highland Church in Abilene, we had a cavernous auditorium, but my coworker came into my office one day and she said, somebody's trying to kill themselves in the baptistry. And I thought, all right, I'm being set up. But I went out, and sure enough, there was a panic. Every minister was running in there. So I went running to the other end of the, into, the, into our cavernous auditorium. And I could hear it. I could hear the splashing. A, a mentally disturbed woman had come off the streets. Our doors weren't locked. And she was trying to kill herself in the baptistry. And um, the children's minister was trying to get there, but she had to go through the women's changing room. Our youth minister was ahead of me. He was in the, the men's changing room uh, putting on waders, <laughs> which I've, I've always loved. He's going to save her, but he's not going to get that old Navy T-shirt wet, you know? <laughs> so I, I don't ask you long, last. You can tell. I mean, it's a little hard to tell because of slope here. I'm not tall. But there, our communion table was about there, so I jumped up on it, and I vaulted up onto the baptism. I promise other witnesses it happened just like this. Leaned over, reached down, and grabbed that woman, and held on for dear life until emergency vehicles came. Now, in Abilene, when you, when you call 911, you get everybody. <laughs> you know, everybody that is a fireman, cop, watched ER a couple times. You know, everybody feels qualified, and so they pour in, they take care of her. And finally, everybody's gone but me and an old cop. Old cop, about a head taller than me. And we're walking out, and he put his arm around me, oddly. And he said, you know, this wouldn't happen if y'all would sprinkle. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's fair. That's fair, and he's got a big gun, so I'm good. I'm flexible on a lot of issues when the other person is caring. And it's Texas. So... But that, that's a Church of Christ story. The communion table's going to be there. We're going to celebrate it every, every Sunday. We, we find it odd to do, to do worship without that. And, and by the way, I know that's not the only way to approach it. Please don't hear me sneaking in that. <laughs> and you're wrong! But it means a lot to us. Weekly communion. In fact... In many places, it's more than weekly. The small group will get together and share communion over a meal. And baptism, some of you on campus here, you've, you've been someplace when there were, there were baptisms, seeing it as participating in the life 
of Christ, the death and burial and resurrection. And um, even, even though we perform it differently, it's funny how similar we are to Catholic thinking on the importance of baptism and communion. There's a lot of overlap in our reasons and so on, even though in one hand it might be sprinkling in children, the other hand it's, it's immersion with adults. We, we recognize that's a central part of the Christian faith. Well, that's, um, <laughs> that's my fill-in attempt to tell you who Churches of Christ are, one vision of unity, these two leaders, these three stories, these four strengths that have a potential dark side. The last thing I want to say, especially to my friends, my coworkers here, uh, I know you're busy, you're working, and we've taken your parking, but, um, <laughs> but there is some great stuff happening. I just, I just came from introducing Esau McCauley, uh, Esau uh, has written the book Reading While Black, and it's just, it's so insightful. He was so funny, so welcoming. Uh, Rubel taught in here right before I went. We, each hour we have about 15 classes, plenary sessions down in the field house. I'd love to invite you to. Bob Goff is, uh, is Friday morning. If you can just get away maybe to hear Bob, we'd love to have you. But um, that's, that's really all I have to say. Thank you for coming both to my coworkers and uh, to the harbor guests who, who peeked in. Uh, let me pray for you all before we go. Oh God, I give you thanks for this group. I pray that you will use uh, my words uh, to bless and not curse. And I pray for strengthening of faith wherever people find themselves in their faith tradition. Lord, bless them and keep them. May my coworkers find deep meaning and joy in their work. May they constantly find ways to link it to your purposes in the world. And I pray for my harbor fellow attendees here that you'll sustain them this week and that you'll bring blessing and a renewal of fire to them. Yes. The Lord bless them and keep them. In Jesus' name, amen.